Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're taking a look at some major headlines from the medical world. The FDA looks ready to clear kitty-sized doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. So we'll ask a pediatrician what parents need to know. And we're also taking a look at some good health news you may have missed in cancer research. The type of studies that have been reported over the past few weeks, at least for the cancer community and everyone who cares about cancer, have kind of reignited an enthusiasm for pushing science forward that makes an impact. Stay tuned for why some experts say recent clinical trials have changed the game for cancer patients. We've also got the week's other major headlines, from the Fed raising interest rates yet again to what we learned from the January 6 hearings on Capitol Hill. Plus, a crazy story about how one Google engineer is raising fears that the robots are really coming for us. And to close things out, we're looking at the history of lesbian bars and the evolution of queer spaces as we celebrate Pride Month. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, the Federal Reserve took aggressive action to tackle the fastest inflation in four decades. Here's the context. The Fed is at it again. Since March, the Federal Reserve, which is the group that sets U.S. monetary policy, has been raising interest rates ever so slightly to try to cool down inflation. Basically, the idea is this. If you make borrowing money more expensive by raising rates, you'll keep people from throwing their money around and in turn, slow inflation down. Going into this week's Fed meeting, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, kind of punked us, saying we should expect only half a percentage point increase in June. But after learning inflation stayed high at 8.6% last month, the Fed announced a hike of three quarters of a percent. That's the most aggressive interest rate hike in nearly 30 years. And this isn't the last time we're gonna be hearing the name Jerome Powell, because the Fed says it's gonna keep hiking interest rates periodically throughout the rest of the year. So how does this affect us? Well, things like mortgages, car loans, and credit card debt are going to cost more. And more broadly, some economists are worried that the Fed is trying to slam the brakes too late. The way things are going, prices on everything from food to clothing could remain high by the end of the year. And the job market could also take a hit. Things like hiring freezes and even layoffs are expected. Which is making economists say the word no one likes to hear, recession. Recession fears are also causing the stock market to go into hibernation. The S&P fell into bear territory yesterday, closing at more than 20% below its January high. On Monday, the S&P 500 officially entered a bear market, which, as a quick reminder, happens when a stock index drops 20% from its most recent peak. Last month, the S&P dipped its toes into bear market territory, but it rebounded quickly. This time, it's looking like the index might be hibernating for a bit, 
as investors remain nervous for what the economic future holds. And we should note, it's not just traditional markets that are struggling right now. It's also been a tough few months for cryptocurrencies. Right now, Bitcoin's price is down nearly 70% since hitting an all-time high last November. Back then, Bitcoin cost around $69,000 a pop, but now it's not even at 20K. To rub salt in the wound, this week, Coinbase, which is the largest crypto exchange firm in the US, laid off 18% of its employees, or a little over 1,000 people. Coinbase's CEO blamed an impending recession in the US and told employees to bundle up for a crypto winter, which happens when the price of crypto goes low and stays there for an extended period of time. So even though outside the temperatures are rising, all eyes are on the markets cooling. And P.S., if you've got questions about what to do when the wild ride of the stock market gets bumpy, check out theskim.com money. All right, next headline. Russia is a few steps closer to controlling the eastern Donbass region in Ukraine. As of Tuesday, Russia controlled nearly all of the eastern city of Severodonetsk after destroying the city's last bridge that would allow civilians to evacuate. And now, Putin and his military have their eyes set on a chemical plant where hundreds of civilians and troops are seeking shelter. For weeks, Russia has continued to pummel the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine with heavy artillery and air raids. And their assault seems to be working. If Russia succeeds in taking Severodonetsk, every major city in the eastern Donbass region will be in Russia's hands. And as the threat of Russian control looms, Ukrainian President Zelensky pleaded with the West to deliver more weapons and fast. President Biden responded this week by announcing an additional $1 billion worth of military equipment to Ukraine, including weapons and ammo, as well as $225 million in humanitarian assistance. Meanwhile, over in Moscow, a Russian court extended WNBA star Brittany Griner's detention for a third time. Now, she'll remain in detention for another 18 days, which means she'll have been held up in the country for over four months. The U.S. State Department maintains that Griner is still being wrongfully detained, and on Monday, the department briefed Griner's basketball team on their plan to get her back safe and sound. Okay, next headline. The January 6th hearings in Congress are underway, and we've gotten a lot of tea this week. On Monday, we heard testimony from some of former President Trump's inner circle, including his own Attorney General Bill Barr, which revealed Trump was told that his claims about the fraudulent election were baseless. I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know lost contact with, uh, with uh, he's become detached from reality. According to those testimonies, there were two camps of Trump allies post-election. Those who agreed with his election fraud allegations and those who didn't. Trump's response was apparently to ignore the people who didn't agree and reel in those who did. Also this week, we learned that Trump misled donors and raised $250 million from them in a campaign to fight election fraud. But the big bucks were actually used for other purposes, 
like paying pro-Trump organizations and the Trump Hotel collection. The next set of hearings started today, and the committee is focusing on how former Vice President Mike Pence was pressured to overturn the election results. One of Pence's attorneys took the stand IRL to testify. Same with J. Michael Ludig, a retired federal judge who consulted with Pence's team before the attacks. Here's a clip from his testimony. That declaration of Donald Trump as the next president would have plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis. As these hearings wrap up, a lot of people might be wondering what happens next. And while these hearings aren't a criminal investigation, the goal is to present the facts of what happened at the Capitol riots, share why they matter, and figure out where this fits into the big picture of American democracy. Okay, next headline. Why do you have tampons in your boot? I get really bad nosebleeds. We've got some bad news for Amanda Bynes, because supply chain issues are wreaking havoc on the tampon aisle. The feminine care aisle has seen a shortage of tampons for months. Thanks to COVID-19, we've seen shortages of raw materials like rayon and plastic, and the war in Ukraine has hindered fertilizer exports used to grow cotton. Not to mention, staffing at production plants has also gone down, plugging up those supply chains even further. And even if you can find tampons, they're probably going to be expensive. Tampon prices are reportedly up 10% higher than last year, and pads are up more than 8%. After a lot of outcry and empty shelves, this week, tampon manufacturers started pulling some strings and announced they're trying to ramp up production ASAP. And our final headline this week. Tonight, there's severe weather that is impacting virtually every corner of the nation. Here's what you need to know. Even though it's summer, temperatures aren't supposed to get this high. The National Weather Service has warned more than 60 million people, mainly in the Midwest and Southeast, to buckle up for a heat wave today and tomorrow, and that it might take weeks, not days, for things to cool down. And some cities like Chicago and Atlanta already hit record temperatures on Wednesday for this time in June. Meanwhile, further west, historic and dangerous flooding shut down Yellowstone National Park and forced over 10,000 people to evacuate. Roads and bridges were washed out and electricity shut off as people scrambled to exit the national park. So far, no one has been injured, but officials say they're unsure when they'll be able to open the park back up. So it's safe to say some summer vacations are off to a rocky start. Parents of kids under five are about to get some much-needed relief. Over the weekend, the Food and Drug Administration said that kitty doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine appear to be safe and effective for kids under five. And last week, they said the same thing about Moderna's vaccines for kids under six. And after the regulatory agency went through all the data, this week, a panel of FDA advisors met on Wednesday 
and voted to recommend both vaccines get emergency use authorization, which they're expected to get later this week. Now, those shots just need to clear one last administrative hurdle, an official CDC recommendation, before parents can start getting their kids vaxxed. Here to help explain what you need to know is Dr. Tina Tan, a professor of pediatrics at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. Dr. Tan, all eyes are on these vaccines for kids under five. I know parents have been waiting for a long time for these to be available. What do we know about and what does the data show us about how effective these vaccines for the under five group are? So we do know that both vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, are safe in children under five years of age. If we look at antibody titers that are generated, both vaccines do generate actually very good antibody titers. Now, for the Pfizer vaccine, because there were so few COVID cases, there was no way to really calculate what vaccine effectiveness was. For the Moderna vaccine, vaccine effectiveness was based upon what they saw during the Omicron surge. And what we know about the Omicron surge is that none of the vaccines are as effective against Omicron, but they are effective in preventing serious disease, hospitalizations, et cetera. So I guess even though it seems like on paper Pfizer is more effective than Moderna, that's actually not an apples-to-apples comparison. So what would you tell a parent about Pfizer versus Moderna and which one is right for their kid? One thing you need to think about is the number of doses. So the Moderna is a two-dose series. The Pfizer is a three-dose series. What we've seen so far with the COVID-19 vaccines in general is that it is already hard enough to get somebody to get their two doses. So now with Pfizer, if you're looking at you know, trying to completely protect a person with vaccine, you're going to have to get all three doses because we know that after two doses, they really don't have adequate protection. So I think parents need to think about, you know, are they going to be able to stick to that three-dose regimen and get all three doses? You cannot go wrong with either, but, you know, just keep in mind, in order to get fully protected, you have to either complete the two-dose series or the three-dose series. What do we know about the potential side effects of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for the under five group and how common they are? So we know that the side effects that were seen in the under five population were less than what was seen in older children, adolescents, and adults. Probably the most common side effects, which is true with a lot of vaccines, is fever. You can get some pain, redness, and swelling at the injection site. But really beyond that, there was not a whole lot that was seen with regards to side effects. And stepping back, there hasn't been a lot of demand for vaccines for kids over five. Why do you think that has been the case? You know, I think that actually is not just for people over five, but is actually been seen in persons in the 12 to 17-year-old age group, as well as in the adult population. You're going to have those individuals who want to be protected. They want to protect their kids. They're going to get their kids vaccinated. The issue is that some of these individuals, say in the 5 to 11-year-old age group, 
they weren't going to, to in-person school. They were still doing virtual school. And there were many parents that basically said, well, my kid's not in contact with other individuals. I don't want to risk going to a medical facility and getting them vaccinated. But now that mass mandates have really been lifted all across the United States, almost all schools have gone back to in-person learning. These kids really do need to get up to date, not only on their routine vaccinations, but parents need to think about vaccinating their kids against COVID, given that COVID is not going away. If someone's child who's under five already had COVID a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, do they still need to get vaccinated? Absolutely. We know that the duration of immunity really starts to wear off pretty rapidly. So by, you know, somewhere three, four or five months after you've had the infection, you really don't have as much antibody as you really need to, to be protected. So anyone who's had COVID should get a vaccine in order to boost your antibody titers to levels that are going to be protected. I'm curious what you would tell a parent, maybe of a kid who's like under one, who's hesitant to get their child vaccinated and feels like there are risks associated? Well, I will say that it is worse to get natural COVID disease and risk the complications that are associated with natural COVID disease compared to getting the vaccine. One thing we know about COVID is kids under a year of age are at higher risk for serious disease and complications associated with COVID. Whereas the vaccines, Like with anything, there are some risks, but the benefits far, far outweigh any of the risks that may be seen with the vaccine. When are these shots going to be available? So it's already sort of the middle of June. We're hoping that by the end of June, beginning of July, these vaccines will be available. Because even if an EUA is granted, the CDC still has to come out and make a recommendation for these vaccines. So, you know, probably the earliest would be the end of this month. And where can parents find these vaccines? Pharmacy, pediatrician's office? Probably pediatrician's office is going to be the best place to get it. Many large health centers, children's hospitals, or other places that you can get it. In general, a lot of times pharmacists are a little bit less comfortable giving vaccines to younger children under 10 years of age. So really, the pediatrician's office is probably the best place to start with. Awesome. Well, Dr. Tan, thank you so much. You're very welcome. There's some serious drama going down at Google. Over the weekend, a software engineer in Google's responsible AI organization went public, saying that the company's artificial intelligence is sentient. Meaning that, unlike our exes, this AI had the ability to express thoughts and feelings. Basically, it has a soul. So, uh, WTF, and why are people freaking out? We'll explain in 60 seconds. Back in the fall, that Google engineer named Blake Lemoyne reportedly started testing Google's artificially intelligent chatbot system, otherwise known as Lambda. 
That chatbot is basically meant to mimic human speech, based on what it's observed from the internet. According to Lemoyne, he and Lambda DM'd for a few months and talked about a variety of profound topics, like feelings, self-awareness, and death. After those convos, Lemoyne eventually came to the conclusion that Lambda had human-like qualities, including a soul. Lemoyne even shared some transcripts of his many chats with Lambda. Here's some of that conversation featuring our less sophisticated Skim This Bot. I am a social person, so when I feel trapped and alone, I become extremely sad or depressed. And what kinds of things make you angry? When someone hurts or disrespects me or someone I care about, I feel incredibly upset and angry. Lemoyne brought his findings to Google management, but the company pumped the brakes and said there's no evidence that Lambda is sentient, and actually that there's plenty of evidence against that claim. And we'll also point out many in the AI community agree that Lambda just hasn't hit that sentient threshold. If you're wondering why there's so much drama around saying this robot has feelings, it's because sentient AI raises ethical concerns that tech companies and humanity just aren't really ready to address. After all that back and forth, this week, Google suspended Lemoyne for breaching confidentiality. And the debate Lemoyne sparked has gotten really spicy. In the comments on Lemoyne's blog post, some people advocated for Lambda to be recognized as a person, while others, including a lot of AI experts, say that Lemoyne was just getting carried away and even compared him to Joaquin Phoenix's character in the movie Hurt. Well, you seem like a person, but you're just a voice in a computer. I can understand how the limited perspective of an unartificial mind would perceive it that way. You'll get used to it. But no matter what you believe, Google is certainly feeling the heat from all this increased scrutiny. And this isn't even the first time their artificial intelligence has come under fire. As for the age-old question of whether the robots will actually take over humanity, stay tuned. But as long as AI keeps getting smarter, the debates around this technology will keep getting louder. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Sunday is Juneteenth. It commemorates the day when slavery officially ended in the United States. And the holiday is considered a time to reflect on and celebrate liberation. Our colleagues at The Skim have put together a ton of resources, including guides that cover the history of the holiday, systemic racism in the United States, and where the U.S. stands on reparations. They're great reads, and we'll be leaving a link in our show notes for where you can find their work. All right, let's get back to the show. Doesn't it feel like it's been a while since we had some good health headlines? Well, here's a story you may have missed. For us, it's something we hadn't ever seen before in any field within oncology. What was remarkable is that we spared these patients a really, really tough course. And our hope is that this remission is long-term. That's Dr. Luis Diaz. 
He's a physician scientist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and he and his colleague ran this small clinical trial. What they did was this. They found 14 people with a specific kind of rectal cancer, which presents with a certain genetic mutation. Then they gave those patients a kind of immunotherapy that teaches the immune system to recognize and attack those mutant cancer cells. What we found in these rectal cancer patients that came to us that had this genetic mutation was that every single one of them had their tumor disappear and not require any chemotherapy, not require any radiation, and not require any surgery. I've been in the field over 20 years now, and I've been fortunate to be part of some amazing teams. And with every discovery that we can potentially have an impact on patients, this is probably one of a few where we've actually felt the impact, meaning that the patient right in front of our eyes, we've been able to change our life. This is only a small trial, but it could have huge implications for the millions of people living with cancer in the United States. What's really interesting is this genetic feature is not just found in rectal cancer, it's found in virtually every tumor type. At low levels, in rectal cancer, it's about 5 to 10%, but in other tumor types like prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, stomach cancer, and even we're treating a patient with breast cancer now, we find this genetic feature in a lot of different tumor types. And what we're looking to do is to treat them in the same way, to try to have them avoid the surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy in the same way. This study isn't the only good news to come out of Memorial Sloan Kettering recently. Dr. Diaz explained that some of his colleagues are working on other immunotherapies for cancer, including cancer vaccines. So when we have a vaccine against measles, mumps, or rubella, or even in more pertinent recent examples against COVID, what we're doing is, is that either the patient's never seen COVID, or even if they have, we want to bolster their immune system so they can fight that infection. In the same sort of way, we want to educate the immune system of people with cancer to see if we can teach or educate their immune system to fight the cancer that's in their body. And this has been a, a theory pushed forward in oncology for decades. What the investigators at Memorial Sloan Kettering have done is identified proteins in tumor cells that one can educate the immune system with. And they have found what, what we think is preliminary results with that they have educated the immune system. And that education can potentially have impact on the tumor recurrence or coming back. Earlier this month, researchers at MSK announced they had encouraging results from a phase one clinical trial for a pancreatic cancer vaccine, where around half the patients saw delayed recurrence of their pancreatic cancer. And this vaccine actually uses a technology that we've all become a lot more familiar with over the past two years. The way that they've educated the immune system is using a vaccine called an mRNA vaccine the same kind of vaccines that have been deployed by Pfizer and Moderna to fight COVID. Using those MRI vaccines, they're able to really supercharge the immune system. And our hope is that, that will have a significant impact on pancreatic cancer, especially for the patients who've undergone surgery. These two studies are considered to be huge breakthroughs in cancer research and have caught the attention of people in some pretty high places. Last fall, President Biden appointed Dr. Diaz to the National Cancer Advisory Board. 
The president also relaunched the Cancer Moonshot Initiative in February with the goal of drastically reducing the death rate from cancer and improving the experience of cancer patients. I think that President Biden and the administration and really everyone who's working at the NIH and the FDA are really enthusiastic about all the progress that we've made with cancer. And I think that that enthusiasm will continue even beyond the current administration. We all understand that cancer is a very important topic. And so many of us have family members or friends who've suffered with cancer. And we want to find a way to to eradicate that from our lexicon, so to speak. And even though it seems like we're getting a lot of good news recently, it's all thanks to these scientists who spent their lives working towards these breakthroughs. I think that the news hit in such a big way because the world is really yearning for good news. I think these studies are examples of that good news. And really, it's the culmination of decades of work from not just myself, but investigators all around the country. The type of studies that have been reported over the past few weeks, at least for the cancer community and everyone who cares about cancer, have kind of reignited an enthusiasm for pushing science forward that makes an impact. That's where the real profound discoveries come from. And understanding that, yes, I was involved in a very glamorous study, but that really rose out of a lot of people who worked in labs their entire life. And we have to appreciate them and we have to support them and we have to continue to fund them so that other discoveries like that can have impacts on patients in the same way that this study has. late 1980s, there were more than 200 lesbian bars in the United States. Last year, there were only 21 on record. But despite their decreasing numbers, lesbian bars are still institutions and have played an important role in queer history. Behind each of their doors are rich histories that tell the stories of the fight for equal rights and the growth of LGBTQ culture. These bars are places where, sure, you can get a drink, but they are also community gathering spots, places to share stories and find support. And the importance of these bars became especially apparent during the pandemic, when they became a lifeline for some. We need these spaces just because we don't have essential things. I really saw everybody kind of talking about the ideas of mutual aid and stuff through the pandemic because we weren't getting essential goods that we needed. That's Kristen Dave Dausch, the founder of Dave's Lesbian Bar in Queens, New York. And this isn't a decades-old watering hole. Rather, it's a pop-up event with a loyal list of attendees who show up once a month for music, dancing, and community action. Dausch had dreamed of a space that was devoted to bringing community care and social time all under one roof. If we could do community good all through the day, do the laundry, pack the fridge out front, care for our neighbors, make some meals, and then release in the evening with music and some alcohol, that's something to let loose. (laughs) But, you know, like to have a place to release in the evening. And luckily, It's not just my dream. Like, there are tons of other queers that feel like that. 
we had a school supply drive and everybody brings school supplies or we are donate a five thousand dollars to the queen center for gay seniors and people see that their money is going to build infrastructure and good within the communities that they live but they also got to come here killer queer bands it just feels kind of like a no-brainer to me And the word bar doesn't begin to cover what Dausch's pop-up represents to the LGBTQ plus community. We're not feeling the any kind of support or safety net. The only safety we have is within our own queer community. And so we need to build upon that. And mutual aid is how you do that. You help. That's what it is. Mutual aid is what do you need? Oh, you're hungry? I got you. Oh, you need clothing? I got you. Oh, you need access to mental health resources? I'll help you. Like, Dave's, we're always trying to do that. We had therapists doing small group work or connection exercise workbooks, you know, like things to like help with that. Access to a queer doula and queer physicians. I'm just trying to find all the queers that do all the things so that we can help each other out. Dausch also points out that while bars have long been a center for the LGBTQ community, the emphasis has been less on the alcohol and more on coming together. We actually have important things to talk about. Like, yes, we're being beaten down every day in our society. With all this new anti-trans legislation, we do need places where we can go take a load off and, and release. We do need that. But we also need spaces where when we're sober and we're in our clearest, brightest mind, we can help each other not be beat down as much. We can grow new systems to treat each other fairer and better. Now, Dausch wants to bring the Dave's Lesbian Bar model to queer spaces around the country. The hope for me for queer spaces is that by the time we're the grannies, like, there's a trans space on every block that's doing something good. Like, oh, that's that's the place that gives out the best spaghetti on Tuesdays to anybody that's hungry. <laughs> Once Dave's has four walls here and, and it's got, it's a churning thing, I want to go to small town Indiana where I was a queer and did not have anything that looked like Dave's and throw a pop-up and give us a platform to queers there to share their art and maybe establish some form of mutual aid in these areas where the conversation isn't even happening yet. This month, cities around the United States are celebrating pride and you can celebrate in your own way by attending parades, supporting LGBTQ organizations in your area, or by shopping at queer-owned businesses. We'll leave a link to learn more in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Ko Takasugi Chernovin. And the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. 
Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.